breaking the chain, a traditional view of dependent origination and its practical application. The awakened one said, whoever sees dependent arising sees the truth. Whoever sees the truth sees dependent arising. There are two facts or characteristics of reality which together, it seems to me, are making up the crux and the essence of what the Buddha taught, the understanding of which is the key to seeing how we got stuck in suffering and bondage and of how we can break the chain and be free. One is the law of dependent origination and the other one is the fact that all beings and all things are empty of self or empty of any kind of inherent existence in Pali, anatta. Tonight I'd like to talk about dependent origination and perhaps towards the end just touch a little bit on the fact of emptiness of self. Dependent arising is actually a very complex and profound teaching and to squeeze it into an hour discourse is quite impossible so that I need to both simplify it but also present a lot of condensed information in very little time. So for those who are not so familiar with the subject, please try to pay as careful attention as you can. And if you can't follow everything, never mind. It's a subject that takes some time and effort to understand. And I believe that it's very much worth all the effort that we can put into it. First, perhaps on, an in, on a level of intellectual understanding, followed by direct observation and seeing. To help you remember, after the talk, I drew this diagram and had some copies made for those who are interested. First, I would like to demonstrate the manner in which dependent arising is presented traditionally. Secondly, I'll try to show what the relevance of dependent origination is for us in meditation and in our life. And thirdly, I'd like to point out the connection between dependent origination, non-self, and freedom. I thought it would be nice for the first part to use the Tonka painting here to help illustrating how dependent origination are seen to be functioning, functioning traditionally. In doing so, we accept for the time being some of the laws the Buddha taught and which we can't verify at this point, such as karma and rebirth. First, a few words on this so-called wheel of birth and death. The Buddha once was staying in Rajgiri, a town in northern India, in a place called the Bamboo Grove. One of his chief disciples, the great Moggallana, who was renowned for his extraordinary psychic powers, would often visit the various realms of existence, such as the hells, the spirit realms, and so forth. He would then talk about what he had seen there to people who are lazy and discouraged with practice and get them inspired again, awakening in them renunciation and new motivation for practice. 
The Buddha decided then that since Mogalyana could not reach enough people by talking about it, a wheel should be painted, much like the one we have here, with the three root causes of suffering in the center, ignorance shown as a pig, greed shown as a rooster, and hatred shown as a snake. with the various realms of existence, such as hells, ghosts, animals, humans, and gods or devas, surrounded by scenes showing or symbolizing the twelve links of dependent origination. The whole wheel should be held in the claws of a wrathful manifestation of impermanence. Look this here. Outside the wheel, enlightened beings, that is, beings who have abandoned desire, hatred, and ignorance, such as Buddha, should be shown. This was to be depicted in the gateways of monasteries as instruction and reminder for monks, nuns, and all kinds of visitors. What is this chain of dependent origination? It is an explanation of how birth and death and suffering come into existence and how they are perpetuated. It's showing how the wheel of what's called samsara comes into existence. And of course, most important of all, how we can be free of it. Traditionally, the explanation starts with ignorance. The Buddha said that looking back over an infinite number of lifetimes, he could not see any point where there had been no ignorance, or where ignorance began. What's meant by this ignorance? Ignorance is a factor of mind that darkens and distorts our perception and our view of reality, of things, in a way that is not in accordance with the actual facts. For example, we tend to look at the world at things and at ourselves as being of a somewhat permanent nature. Because we relate to the world through concepts such as house, car, person, I, me, others, and so forth, we tend to mistake the concept, which is a permanent thing, with the actual reality of that object, which is, as we all know, highly impermanent. Another example, we tend to believe or hope that objects, people, and situations are going to give us some lasting satisfaction, some kind of stable peace, if only we can manipulate things so as to get them to behave the way we'd like them to. Since it is not really in the nature of things to behave the way we want them to, of course we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Just consider for a moment the tremendous amount of pain and frustration we are getting ourselves into doing that again and again on all levels. It's much like reaching out in the darkness to grasp a poisonous snake, believing that it's the garden hose. To make things worse, we crystallize and solidify our misperception by projecting or imagining some sort of substantiality into all things, 
including a sense of self in our own being. Ignorance also means that we are ignoring the difference between wholesome and unwholesome actions and the fact that they cause karmic results to ripen. Much like being unaware of the fact that from the seed of a hot chili, no tree with sweet mangoes will grow. In that way, we are blind to the possibility of influencing the quality of our life in terms of suffering and happiness and of the possibility of freedom altogether. These are only a few examples of what ignorance does in the mind. Rodney, in his talk last week, has given a much more detailed and sophisticated explanation of some of the workings of ignorance. Very appropriately, ignorance is symbolized in the painting here by a blind person approaching a cliff. Mistaking the nature of things and not understanding the nature of our actions, we find ourselves in constant reaction to experience and to the world. Thus, we constantly create tendencies, habits, and karmic patterns in our minds. Some of these karmic intentions, reactions, and actions are like lines drawn in the water. They disappear right away as they're drawn. Some stronger ones are like lines drawn into sand. And yet others are like lines or crevices chiseled into rock. It's mostly the latter that I refer to here. Intentions and actions that are strong enough to throw us into a new birth. What is called throwing karma. In the painting, these formative tendencies are symbolized by a potter, someone who is constantly busy creating new things. Both ignorance and formative tendencies here are seen as those of our past life. At the time of death, through their power, the consciousness is thrown into a new birth. Thus, at the moment of conception, a new rebirth consciousness arises usually shown in the picture by a monkey jumping from a dead tree to another living tree. In this picture, it shows simply a jumping monkey, symbolizing the consciousness jumping from one life form to the next, being reborn in any of these different realms, according to karma. So through formative tendencies, conditioned arises rebirth consciousness. It's the power of karmic action that throws us even though there is no one there who is reborn. It says, no doer of the deed is found, no one who ever reaps their fruits. Empty phenomena roll on, dependent on conditions all. At the same time, we need to remember just how powerful these karmic conditions are. It says in another text, fire may become cold, the wind may be caught by a leash, sun and moon may fall down on earth, but the result of karma is infallible. 
with rebirth consciousness, we enter the resultant phase of the present life. Rebirth consciousness, having met the sperm and egg at conception together, will develop into the mind-body process, shown usually as two people in the same boat. Here, for some reason, there seem to be three people. From this, the sixth sense is automatically arise. It should be showing a house with six windows. Perhaps the painter missed the point of there being six windows corresponding to the six senses. With the six senses present, there is bound to be contact. For contact between an object and its respective consciousness to arise, it takes a number of conditions. It takes an intact organ, such as, for example, the eye, an object, in this case a visual object, takes light, attention, and the eye consciousness. Similarly, with all the other sense organs, objects, and corresponding consciousnesses. If these conditions are present, contact will take place, whether we've asked for it or not. Contact is symbolized by two people embracing. As soon as there is contact of consciousness with any object, there is bound to be feeling. Feeling is the actual texture of our experience, so to speak. It is defined as that which experiences, or the experiencer. Just as it is the knowing consciousness which knows, so it is the feeling which feels. It is not feeling in the sense of emotion here, but simply the three modes of receptive feeling, which are either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. On the painting, a person with an arrow in the eye is shown. It points out, in a somewhat dramatic manner, that all feelings are ultimately dukkha, or not satisfactory. Unpleasant and neutral ones, because they are a suffering, or at least are not pleasant, while pleasant ones have the nature to eventually pass away, like everything else in this world. It's here, at this point, once feeling has arisen, that we enter again the active phase of the chain. Whenever pleasant feeling has arisen, most likely there will be, will be wanting or desire arising as well. Similarly, when unpleasant feeling has arisen, dislike or aversion is likely to appear. The wanting mind, or what in Pali is called tanha, or thirst, is shown by a person who is drinking, a thirsty person. This one. Wanting escalates into reaching out, grasping and clinging, the next link in the chain. Similarly, dislike escalates into resisting and pushing away. It is shown here as a person, or sometimes a monkey, who is reaching out to pick fruit from a tree. Okay. 
grasping and clinging then escalate into action and becoming. New karma is created and we are ready at the time of death to jump to the next life again. Becoming is shown here as a woman pregnant with new future life. It might be useful at this point to remember again that it is not someone who is reborn after death with some entity to pass over. It is rather the continuity of the energy of our actions and tendencies that causes a new birth to arise. With birth, a new future life starts, pictured as a newborn baby up here. Starting with the moment of birth, aging begins, and thus the stage is set again for disease, decay, old age, death, and a lot of suffering. Shown here as a person carrying a corpse, or sometimes shown as a deceased, very old person walking near a graveyard up here. Once we die, we'll forget even a little bit of what we know, and thus more ignorance is bound to be there. In this manner, it's through our own ignorance action and reaction, that we keep this circle of samsara going. The Buddha once asked, which do you think is more, the flood of tears, which weeping and wailing you have shed upon this long way, hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth, united with the undesired, separated from the desired, this or the waters of the four oceans? And he answered, Long have you suffered the death of father and mother, of sons, daughters, brothers and sisters. And whilst you were thus suffering, you have indeed shed more tears upon this long way than there is water in the four oceans. How is this possible? Inconceivable is the beginning of this samsara, not to be discovered is any first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth. And thus have you long undergone suffering, undergone torment, undergone misfortune, and filled the graveyards full. Truly long enough to be dissatisfied with all the forms of existence long enough to turn away and free ourselves from them all. It's a powerful statement. What can be done about it? The chain can be reversed by replacing ignorance with insight and wisdom through the practice of awareness. Wisdom is the factor in the mind that allows for seeing and understanding things clearly the way they are. Just as a lamp instantly can dispel the darkness of eons, wisdom dispels the darkness of ignorance. The traditional formula runs like this. When ignorance ceases, no more karmic tendencies are created. Without karmic tendencies, no rebirth consciousness arises. Thus, no mind-body complex arises and no six senses appear. Without the six senses, no contact, 
and without contact, no feelings. Without feelings, no wanting, and no grasping, clinging, and no becoming arise. Without becoming, no birth takes place. And decay, disease, old age, death, suffering, and grief all come to an end. About this state, the enlightened one said, this I call neither rising nor passing away, neither standing still, nor being born, nor dying. There is neither foothold, nor development, nor any basis. This is the end of suffering. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done. Steadfast is the mind, gained is deliverance. Some schools take this very literally. Such enlightened beings will li live a holy life, and at death their mind stream will completely dissolve, like a snowflake in the warm spring air. Some other schools take it as meaning that the defiled aggregates of grasping cease, but the purified continuum of such holy ones will go on, manifesting the Dharma throughout the ages out of compassion for all suffering beings. Personally, I don't know about this, but I feel that what matters most for us is what we can learn from these teachings and what we can do about it right now in our meditation, in our life. It's important first to understand that samsara is not some outer condition, but is the state of our mind. It's our mind and our mind only. Buddhahood and the lowest hells are both just its manifestation. The Tibetans give an example of samsara as being like a naked person carrying a bundle of thorns tied to the body. The thorns are the aggregates, defiled with craving, grasping, and so forth. The rope which binds them is the throwing karma. To be free from suffering, the person has to cut the ropes of karma with the sword of awareness and wisdom. How can this be done? There are many areas in our mind where we can bring awareness to in order to see clearly what is happening. I'll give a number of examples here which are meant to give us some ideas or inspiration to take a careful look, to give, give us a sense of the possibilities of the practical application of this teaching. To do that, We'll go through each link again. Ignorance. As we meditate, observing, feeling, and investigating what's presenting itself, we can begin to see how the ignorance in our minds creates mistaken perceptions of reality. There's a whole variety of events that we might want to observe. We might want to observe how we mix up and mistake concepts with reality. We could, for example, pay attention to the sound of a bird, 
call, 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 as it arises. What happens immediately after? Is an image of a blackbird appearing? Does the word crow or the sound crow arise in the mind? Or we may hear squeak, squeak, as we sit in the hall. What happens? Does a picture of a person walking into the hall come up? Or words? Or does that sound very nakedly arise and disappear in our mind? Do we react? What's the reaction? Do we react to the bare squeak, squeak? Or do we react to the concept, the idea about it? What's the difference between responding to the bare sound and reacting to ideas about it? Do perhaps in one case like, dislike, and judgment come in? Or does it just help us to make sure of who we are, in case we had lost that sense for a moment? Again, if we attune to the bare squeak, we are in tune with the reality that is arising, changing, and disappearing again. If we are tuned into our idea about squeak, we relate to a permanent entity, a concept, which remains unchanging. An enormous difference. Since one way of seeing is in harmony with reality, while the other way isn't. And thus, it becomes obvious how we get into conflict with reality. It's not that concepts are not useful. Their use only becomes a problem when we mistake them with actuality. Let's look at another example of the functioning of ignorance. Assuming some desirable object arises in our mind, does our mind attribute the pleasantness to the object itself? Or is it clear that the pleasantness arises in our mind depending on the ways our mind is conditioned with regard to that object, perhaps conditioned through our past experiences with that object. The Tibetans use a word to describe what the mind does to such an object. It is putting on feathers to the object. It's making it up, beautifies it, and then the mind behaves as if it were an actual property of the object. Yet another way of ignorance to mistake reality and to cause disappointment and suffering when finally it turns out that the object doesn't have the quality of lasting pleasantness which the mind has been projecting onto it. Perhaps the most relevant process to look at is the way we relate to ourselves and experience in terms of identification of duality, of inherent beingness. I'd like to go into this more at the end of the talk. Wherever we look and become clear of what's going on, it's the process of ignorance being replaced by awareness and wisdom, the way to break the chain and to be free. For now, let's go on to the next link.
formative tendencies. Since ignorance causes us to misperceive reality, we're bound to find ourselves in constant conflict with that reality, simply because reality doesn't behave the way we expect it to. We react with likes and dislikes, which develop into habitual tendencies of halting and resisting. We are driven to perform all kinds of actions in the hope of being able to manipulate reality to get it to conform to our needs and desires. If we are willing to bring awareness and light to that process of re reactiveness, our attitude to life will change significantly. We will experience a greater sense of balance as the push-pull movement of the mind reduces itself and more spaciousness appears. We'll be looking at this in more detail further down the chain. The next five links are of the resultant phase of the process again. We can simply observe that this process of reactive response has conditioned us into a certain pattern, personality, or character on all levels, the physical, sensorial, psychological, mental, and so forth. Another aspect we might want to observe here is the relationship of mind and body. We can watch how, for example, needs and desires in the mind cause intentions to arise which in turn cause the body to move, to do certain things. Or we can watch how things that happen in the body can move or influence the mind in many ways. If we take a careful look, it can become quite apparent how the body and mind function in a mutual cause-effect relationship without someone doing it or someone that it happens to. We can further observe how upon contact the consciousness and its object arise together, forming an inseparable unity, having different aspects. One being the object, the other the knowing of the object. Observing this process closely, it becomes even more apparent that all of our experience, ourselves and the whole world, is made up of these two things object and knowing, with no one outside this two to whom all this refers. Incredibly fascinating things to watch. And we were speaking of boredom the other day. In my own practice, I found that often I had the idea that first I have to get my practice together, my concentration, my awareness, and then I will investigate. It never happened because they never seemed together enough. Until the time, I simply started looking. And the looking itself brought the interest and all the rest. Every single moment is worth our full attention. As consciousness and its object arises, there will always, together with them, arise feeling. The Venerable Mahagosananda, a Cambodian monk who visits here sometimes, speaks of Vedana or feeling as being the eater. 
What we do all life long is being busy providing food for our feelings, trying to feed it pleasant stuff, and whenever we don't succeed with that, feed it unpleasant stuff. Still better than nothing. Anything is better than nothing. It's very crucial for us, if we are genuinely interested in freedom, to observe and learn to understand the nature of feelings and to become very clear about our relationship to feeling. It might be worthwhile to spend some time in our meditation just noticing the three different kinds of feelings that arise, just determining from moment to moment whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling that arises, so as to actually get a clear sense of the constant presence of feeling and get familiar with its actual textures or flavors. Once some awareness of the different kinds of feeling is there, we'll start to be able to tune in to the point where the mind reacts with desire or wanting as soon as there is a pleasant feeling. We'll see how it reacts with dislike as soon as there is an unpleasant feeling. We might see how it stays deluded when neutral feeling prevails. This really is the key to freedom. If a strong awareness and wisdom is present at this point, the mind might respond with balance and openness instead of contraction, of wanting and of dislike. When there is that openness to just be there instead of reacting, then freedom is coming in. This is really working at the roots of samsara. If we remain ignorant of that process, the mind tends to escalate the wanting into grasping and holding on. The dislike tends to escalate into resistance and pushing away. If that's the point where we become aware of what's going on, fine. We might catch ourselves the moment we are about to pull the trigger to shoot somebody, fine. We pull out our finger and then look backwards to see how we got there. What exactly was that feeling that made us react and then rush into action? A very helpful thing to do, to trace back and check up the point of contact with feeling. Any point where awareness is coming in is fine, even in the middle of an action. Once an action, mental, verbal, or physical, is accomplished, we're bound to get back its result. Thus, we are again in the resultant phase. Birth, death, suffering, and more ignorance. If we reflect on, understand, and know by heart the points where we either tie ourselves into knots or loosen the knots, we'll be able to tune into these events as they occur in our experience, as we meditate, as we go along in daily life. I hope there is some energy left with people as I'd like to spend a little bit of time on the third part, 
tying in the discovery of non-self. What ignorance also does is to create a sense of self, a sense of there being an entity, someone within the experience we have in ourselves. It further creates a sense of duality between me, myself, another. And this creates the necessity for myself to acquire or avoid objects and beings that are separate from myself. Finally, it creates a sense of self in all objects, in that it attributes them with the substantiality, an independent way of existing from their own side. It is here that insight and wisdom are most profoundly liberating. As we begin to see deeper, we start to see what the Buddha meant when he said, Suppose a man who is not blind beheld the many bubbles of the Ganges as they drove along, and he watched them and carefully examined them. They would appear to him empty, unreal, and unsubstantial. In exactly the same way does the monk behold all material phenomena, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness whether they be of past, or the present, or the future, far or near. And he watches them, and examines them carefully. And after carefully examining them, they appear to him empty, void, and without the self. People sometimes ask, if there is no self, how can there be rebirth? It is only because there is no self that cause and effect and dependent origination can arise. It's very obvious, yet quite difficult to see. Perhaps it's easier to see if we turn it around. To paraphrase the Dalai Lama, if phenomena were not empty of self, not empty of a substantial inherent nature, then it would not be possible for any changes to be brought about. If there were anything that existed in a substantial way, whatever its state might be, it would never change from that. When we speak of emptiness, it doesn't refer to an emptiness that is around or behind the phenomena and out of which they appear and into which they disappear again. It's rather so that emptiness on one hand and cause and effect of dependent rising on the other hand are like the two sides of one and the same coin. They exist mutually dependent on each other. The fact that the seed turns into a sprout while the seed totally disappears shows that there cannot be the slightest reality in terms of a substance. Right? Yet the bamboo seed will give a bamboo sprout, not any other sprout. As the law <coughs> of causation is incorruptible, just as wholesome and unwholesome action 
will give pleasant and unpleasant result, respectively. Avalokiteshvara says to Sariputra in the Heart Sutra, emptiness does not empty the form, and emptiness is not separate from form. The very form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. When there is awareness and spaciousness in the mind, experience seems to be more and more transparent. Just as a magician produces visible objects, such as horses, elephants, carts, and other things, which, though they appear, are not truly existent, so should you experience the whole of reality, says the Samadhi Raja Sutra. When this is seen deeply, we come to realize that pain and pleasure, birth and death, bondage and freedom, have only as much reality as the mind invests in them. From that perspective, though samsara, with its tremendous sufferings and joys, appears to be existing, Nothing has ever stirred from perfect stillness. Thus, there is freedom. This freedom begins with awareness and with mindfulness at this very moment, right now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.